If you're visiting with us this morning, we're studying the life and the ministry of Jesus in chronological order. Never a dull moment. I mean, every next passage is just say, what can happen next and what we learn about him in it. And we come to a beautiful and very insightful passage this morning. John's Gospel, chapter 8, verse 1. We'll pick it up in the last verse of chapter 7. And everyone went to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Now early in the morning he came again to the temple, and all the people came to him. And he sat down and he taught them. And then the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses and the law commanded us that such should be stoned, but what do you say? And this they said testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and he wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. And so when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, He who is without stone among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And again he stooped down and he wrote on the ground. And then those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. And when Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are the, those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for our Savior. Thank you for Jesus. And thank you for this book, this Bible, Lord, your revelation that we get to hold in our hands and this time for us to study in fellowship with your Holy Spirit, to get to know him better, Lord. There's so much in this passage about what not to be like and what to be like for us that claim to represent you in this world. And so, Lord, we pray that every thought and intent of yours that's behind every one of these 11 verses, that those things would be built into our lives as you're continuing to make us more and more like Christ. And so we look to you for that work of your Spirit. We ask it of you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. These events in these first 11 verses of chapter 8 occur in the city of Jerusalem on the day following the last day of the feast, Jewish feast of tabernacles. And the final day of that Jewish feast of tabernacles uh, ended, and as it ended, the city of Jerusalem was very, very sharply divided in their opinions concerning Jesus. The common man, the regular person, listening to Jesus, watching his life and all, uh, with them, Jesus was very, very popular. And by and large, the common man considered him to be the Messiah, to be the Son of God. But among the Jewish religious leaders in Jerusalem at that time, they held a very different opinion of Jesus. Uh, they did not consider him to be the Messiah. They did not consider him to be the Son of God. They weren't open to even considering it. The reason for their rejection of Jesus was not theological, it wasn't biblical, it wasn't something immoral about his life or something that he did wrong. It was a great frustration to them. They couldn't find anything wrong with him. 
But the reason they were opposed to him was that his life and his uh, teaching and, uh, and uh, all these things were uh, undermining their authority. Everything that, how he lived his life, um, what came out of his mouth, his great popularity endangered their position. It endangered their wealth, their money-making operation. They had turned Judaism into a cash cow. They were making unbelievable amounts of money off the people through their religious positions. And of course, Jesus exposed these things in his teaching. So they want to be done with him, but not for good reason, but for selfish uh, reasons and the threat that he represented to their continued power and their continued wealth. And so the day ends, we're told there, the last uh, verse 53 of, of chapter 7. Everyone goes to their own homes in the city of, of Jerusalem and the surrounding area. And in verse 1 of chapter 8, we're told that Jesus went over to the Mount of Olives, probably uh, because it was going to be an early morning the next morning, spent the night in one of the many caves that are a part of the Mount of Olives with the disciples so that he could get an early start on the next day. Jesus had said that foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And we see an example of it here in, in the passage. Notice in verse 2 that the next morning Jesus returns to the temple in Jerusalem, he crosses what is a relatively narrow valley called the Kidron Valley. It's no really wider than the distance from this pulpit to uh, the houses that are on the other side of our property. Maybe a little bit more than that, but the valley is a very, very narrow uh, valley. The Mount of Olives is on the east side of Jerusalem, so he crosses the Kidron Valley and he comes into the area of the temple in Jerusalem. We're told that he did it early in the morning, and that word that's used for that means uh, very early in the morning, at dawn, at daybreak, the sun is just breaking uh, out. So it is very, very early. We can be sure no musicians were present. It was all farmers and older people that wake up 20 times during the night, no matter what. <laughs> I'm just kidding, but... Uh, we know something of it. So uh, he enters in, we're told, in, in verse 20, or I mean here, he enters into one of the courtyards, we'll see in verse 20. And uh, one of the courtyards, the courtyards were the gathering places associated with, with the temple itself. And in verse 20, we're told that it was in the courtyard near the treasury that all of this took place, which we know to be the courtyard of the women. Now, the temple was surrounded by a series of courts or a series of courtyards. And, um, and all these courtyards that surrounded the, the temple, they became more and more restrictive in terms of who could enter into these courtyards the closer that you got to the temple. And the outer part of these courtyards was known as the Court of the Gentiles. That tells you they allowed all, anything, anyone could come. Jews and Gentiles, any manner of riffraff could come that far. And I speak of myself that far in approaching God at the temple. And that's where they sold them. They had the money exchangers there and they sold the animals. All that stuff is happening in, in the court of, of the Gentiles. As you would make your way closer to the temple, you would then come to the court of the women. And only Jews could head into that courtyard. And uh, if a Gentile tried to move into that courtyard, it would be under the, the uh, punishment of, of death. 
So there was this, uh, as you would make your way uh, inside, there would be the court of, of the women. And uh, both Jewish men and women could congregate in that courtyard. It was called the court of the women uh, because that was as far as women could go in approaching the temple. Beyond the court of the women was the court of Israel where men, Jewish men, no matter what their tribe, could head into that courtyard. And then the inner courtyard associated with the temple was a courtyard that was exclusively for uh, the priests. Only the priests and the Levites could enter in there. It's interesting here that Jesus only goes as far as the court of the women. And as he's in the court of the women, a group of people who were there very, very early tells us something about their love for God, tells us something about their hunger and their thirst for God. They're there before the sun even uh, comes up. And so they find themselves there and they, uh, and then spotting Jesus there, they come to him in order for him uh, to, to teach them. It was very, very common and a standard practice for different Jewish rabbis to go to the area, the courtyards of the temple. They would appear, their disciples would recognize them, there is our teacher. They would then congregate around him. He would obviously, in coming there and standing there, it would be a communication that he had something to communicate to his disciples or his followers. So they would congregate around him to listen to what he would uh, reveal to them about God. So they do the same thing with Jesus. They want to know what does Jesus have to say about God? What revelation does he have for them? about God, and they congregate around him. And so Jesus proceeded to teach them. And you notice that in teaching them, he sat down and he taught them. In those days, the teachers sat and the students stood. So it's very different from what we do. We, we could sell all these and buy me a big throne. <laughs> be a little heady for me, though, wouldn't it? You can see it, though. I'd look good there. But anyway, it's better that we do this. This is the way they did it. We do it a better way for us. And so, but that's, that's why Jesus takes the position that he does. Now, put yourself in there. I mean, here we are. We're in about the same time of the year, late September, early October. Fall is in the air, right? And, uh, and so the mornings are, are pretty sweet right now. And uh, there's that briskness that's there. You're coming out of one season, entering into another season. So here you are. You're at the temple. It's a beautiful time of the year. And you're attending a Bible study that Jesus is teaching at the temple in Jerusalem. Now, can you think of anything better? I can't think of anything better than that. If I'm there in that courtyard of the women and I'm listening to Jesus' teaching, I'm thinking to myself, let's order in lunch, dinner for the next 20 years. Let's not let this ever stop. It's just tremendous what's happening uh, here. And, and then, but right at that moment, while this beautiful thing is, is happening, Jesus uh, teaching and them receiving and, and the dynamic of what's going on, suddenly it's interrupted. And I call it an interruption, and, and it was an interruption, but I, I don't think it was an interruption uh, to Jesus. I'm personally convinced that Jesus, the, that the reason Jesus proceeded no further than, uh, than the court of the women that morning was not only because he wanted to allow, as is his way, allow both men and women equal access to him and his teaching, 
But I think he also knew ahead of time that the religious leaders of the Jews are going to want to drag a woman before him in an attempt to trap him. And if he had gone further, one courtyard further inward toward the temple, they would not have dared have brought that woman into that courtyard. And Jesus could have relieved himself of some considerable aggravation by doing that, but he wants the aggravation. He wants to teach them something. He wants to teach the woman something. He wants to teach the congregation that's listening to him at the moment something. He wants to teach us uh, something. So this interruption occurs, and you notice in verse 3 who they were, the scribes and the Pharisees. And these are Jewish religious leaders, again, whose power, whose livelihoods uh, and ministries are threatened by Jesus' life and teaching. And so they are endeavoring to find some fault with him. And if he's not going to stumble into a sin or he's not going to say something wrong or do something wrong, which they haven't been able to see him do yet, then they want to trap him into a sin. At the very least, they want him to say or do something that is a sin and is wrong and will divide his his following, will uh, make some kind of a dent into his popularity. What they're really hoping for is that he'll say or do something that would require his arrest and and then uh, if if they could somehow put him to death, they would be most pleased of of all. And so their actions were told there in verse 3. Again, you've got to picture this, this beautiful Bible study, this beautiful, pure, holy, wonderful thing that's going on. And then these guys, they just barge in and they got a woman caught in adultery and they set her, really cast her into the midst of the whole Bible study in front of Jesus, in front of uh, everybody that's, that's there. And, and, and you think about um, how you put yourself in the place of these religious leaders and you think, I mean, how out of control can a person be? How full of yourself, how arrogant, how proud to think that I'm going to interrupt the teaching of not just a rabbi, but I'm going to interrupt the teaching of Jesus Christ himself in a courtyard of the temple with this nonsense of what they're doing in an attempt to trap him. It's just a terrible, terrible picture of, of, of how rude and thoughtless and arrogant and proud uh, religious people can be. And it's in every one of us to interrupt Jesus with, with, for no importance at all. You talk about a dollar waiting on a dime in terms of what, what they're doing here and, and how full they are of their, their own sense of, of self-importance and how far their heart is from the heart of God. So they forcibly take this woman who they've caught in the very act of adultery and uh, they cast her there, place her right before Jesus in the midst uh, of the crowd. And again, you think, man, if these people couldn't be any more hard-hearted than they are in interrupting Jesus, then they just go right off of the graph with this. I mean, I don't care who we are. What kind of a way is this to treat another human being? I don't care if you catch them in a sin or you don't catch them in a sin. To drag them through a city and publicly shame them in, in this way, to humiliate her in this way, in, in all of it, just using her as a pawn in the game to let's try and trap Jesus. 
You put yourself in her place. And I put myself in her place. I mean, only minutes before, she was right in the very act of adultery. And, and, and I, I doubt that these men, upon catching her in that very act, especially since they wanted to make this case against Jesus, that they allowed her to calmly dress herself and get some makeup on and make herself presentable and, and a little more respectable. They don't want her looking respectable. So they probably allow her the time to do whatever's necessary to basically cover up her nakedness and, and they grab her, forcibly pull her through the streets of Jerusalem. She has no idea where she's being taken, but alley by alley and block by block, it's becoming more and more clear to her that they are pulling her to the one place she does not want to go in all of Jerusalem, and that is the temple. She knows they're taking her uh, there. And imagine what would be going on. If I was in her place, I mean, my head would be spinning. I don't doubt that her head was spinning. And you just think, and I think, whether in this kind of a situation or in some other kind of situation, and it doesn't, doesn't matter what the sin is, it can happen when you're in your second grade classroom or it can happen in adult life where something happens and you're just thinking to yourself, this is not happening right now. This is not happening to me right now. This cannot be real. I'm dreaming. This is not happening to me right now. And I never read this without just thinking about her shame, the embarrassment, I mean the treatment. These men are claiming to represent God and they're treating her in this way. And, and then not only that, but you think about the fear that she has. What in the world are they going to do to me here? And the guilt that she feels over her sin. And, and then to be so publicly exposed for her sin. And all of it was a trap, you know. And they question Jesus, verses 4 and 5. And, and they challenge him in, in, in verse 4. And, and they declare that this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. In other words, it's indisputable. She's guilty. There's no doubt she's guilty. She does not, she does not try to defend herself. She doesn't decry the charges in any way. She is silent. The charges are true. They have caught her uh, red-handed. Red and then they inform Jesus concerning the sentence that was to be meted out against her on the basis of the law of Moses. And the law of Moses declared that uh, uh, someone caught in adultery was to be stoned to death. And it was true. The law did require that. Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10. The man who commits adultery with another man's wife, he who commits adultery with his neighbor's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress, shall surely be put to death. And then in verse 5, they challenged him. So that's what the law of Moses says. And then they challenged him about what he had to say about what should be done to her. And they're trying to pit him against the law of, of Moses. They're, it's all an attempt to trap Jesus, as we're clearly told there in, in verse 6. This they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. They don't care about the law of Moses. They don't care about God. They don't care about this woman. They don't care about righteousness in Jerusalem. They don't care about any of that stuff. Their whole deal is all about them finding a way to trap Jesus and in some way uh, uh, make it uh, uh, appear that he, is, he teaches in, in contrary to the law of Moses. And their dishonesty is not only exposed there in verse 6, but their dishonesty is also revealed in the fact that they only produced a woman. 
and did not produce the man. Now, last time I heard, when you catch a woman in the very act of adultery, you got a man pretty close proximity. So they only bring the woman and they let the man go. And so here, if they catch her committing adultery right in the very act, then they had the man and where in the world is the man? So this tells us their real concern isn't about the law of Moses. Their real concern is to trap Jesus. That's a clever trap. Now you can't trap Jesus. You can't trap God. It's an exercise in frustration. But if you're going to come up with one, they came up with a really good one. This is a very, very clever trap that they're laying uh, for him here. And I have no doubt they think, we have got him. There's no, there's no way out of this for him. In their minds, he has only one of three answers that he can give. Any one of those three will hurt his reputation and will diminish his following, maybe even endanger his life, which is what they would really like to see. Here are his options. If he says, no, she's not to be stoned, then that would immediately communicate that Jesus is contrary to the law of Moses, the righteous standard of the law of Moses. And so it would tell everyone that was following Jesus that he is to be rejected as one who opposes the law of God through Moses. So not only could he not be the Messiah, not only could he not be the Son of God, he would be labeled as a false prophet, he would be labeled as a false teacher, and and all of his claims to Messiahship would go out the window if he said, no, she's not to be stoned. If he says, yes, she ought to be stoned, they would have immediately run to the closest, nearest, the, the nearest Roman official and, and turned Jesus in as an insurrectionist. Because in the Roman Empire, when they subjugated people, they took away from these different nations the right to enforce capital punishment. The Roman Empire held that to themselves. So no Jew could enforce capital punishment from the law occupied by Rome. They couldn't do it. So if Jesus said, yeah, she ought to be stoned, they'd run and, and find a Roman official and accuse him of, of looking to uh, lead a rebellion against Roman authority, which would have resulted in, in his arrest. It, it, additionally, if he said, yeah, uh, she ought to be stoned to death, that would have greatly confused Jesus' following. Because many of the people who were following him were great sinners, just like today. I consider myself one. But they found, in listening to Jesus, they found hope for even a great sinner in, in him and in his teaching. And so if he said, yeah, if she ought to be stoned, then this would have very much disappointed and very much divided his, his followers and taken away one of the reasons for his, his popularity. So in their minds, they think they've got him trapped. They're going to ruin him. No matter what answer he gives, uh, we, we've got him. And again, all an attempt on their part to try and force Jesus to one extreme of his nature to the neglect of the other. They think he's only got two choices. He can represent himself as holy but unloving, or he can represent himself as loving but unholy. So we forced him to make a choice. And in their minds, they think Jesus has been getting away with murder, so to speak. They don't understand how. Here he is, 
he, he's getting away with what they didn't seem to be able to get away with, and that is he, is he has people convinced that he is both holy and loving. In their mind, you've got to choose between those two things. And so they're going to force him to just personally out himself on this whole thing. I mean, God can't be holy and loving at the same time. Can he? Well... What in the world is Jesus going to do with this trap that they've laid? And as I said, it's a very, very good one. Notice his response at the end of verse 6, he, in, in the beginning of verse 7. He stooped down and he wrote on the ground with his finger as though he didn't hear. That's his physical response to this, this interruption that they've brought in the middle of his Bible study. It's the only incident in the whole Bible, the only place in the whole Bible, where we see Jesus uh, writing something. What did he write? We have no idea. There is no revelation about what he wrote on the ground as he, as he wrote there the first time. I, I don't think it's unlikely that he was, wrote nothing, essentially. I, I, I hope all of you have experienced at some point in life where you've been you know, deep in thought and some kind of a situation that you find yourself in the middle of and, if, and you pick up a stick or maybe with your finger or what, you just kind of are moving the soil around or moving it all while you're deep in thought about what, what you're in. And I'm inclined to believe that that's kind of the place that, that Jesus was in, in all of this. I don't think that Jesus was uh, figuring out uh, what to do here. I think he did all of this and he's uh, kind of you know, moving the dirt and, and, and all uh, out of embarrassment over this whole thing. I think he's embarrassed for these religious leaders claiming to represent God. And how in the world can they do this? He's embarrassed for the people to see this. He's embarrassed for the woman. And, and so he's embarrassed over, over the whole thing. Well, you notice in verse 7, they view his silence as an evidence they got him. So he's silently and he's doing this, so they just keep clamoring and say, Moses' law says, and then what do you say? Moses' law says, and they keep demanding an answer from him. And, and when they continue to pelt him with this same question over and over again, he stands up there in verse 7 and he said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. So we saw his physical response, and then here we have his verbal response. And as you might expect, it is very, very brilliant. He declares to them that the law of Moses is absolutely just. In the light of the law of Moses, she should be stoned. And as a result of him saying this, they, he's taken one of their accusations away from him. They cannot accuse him of being against the law of Moses. He's addressing their trap point by point. And then he suggests that the first stone to begin the stone stoning be thrown by one who is without sin. Now, it's very important to understand what isn't happening here. Jesus is not saying that a person cannot confront... That Jesus is not saying that we need to be sinless or we need to be perfect in order to confront sin or wrongdoing in another person's life. I, because that would violate too much of, Je of Jesus' teaching and too much of the rest of the Bible. Who could raise a child if you had to be perfect before you could address what's unjust? What church could ever enact church discipline if 
Everybody that was involved in the judgment of the situation had to be perfect. Who could sit in, a, in, in support of the laws of the land, sit in a, a jury in, in, in a courtroom as a Christian if you had to be sinless in order to cast a judgment? That's not what Jesus is, is, is saying here. I think the key to understanding this is found in the two words there in, in what he says. He who is without sin, and there they are, among you. He wasn't talking to the crowd. He wasn't talking to Jerusalem. He wasn't talking to the world. He wasn't talking to us in this room. He was talking to these men. And then notice that following that statement, Jesus then stooped and he wrote on the ground again. But this time, their reaction is completely different. There's no more clamoring. There's no more accusations. Nothing like that. No shouting or demands or any of that kind of stuff. Instead, Jesus' words, were told, convicted them in their conscience so that they not only left one by one, but interestingly, they left from the oldest to the youngest. In other words, something, he has communicated something to them in this what he has spoken, and then what he has written in addition to what he has spoken. I'm inclined to believe that Jesus, when he stooped and he wrote, what, the, what he wrote on the ground was the fullness of the verse from the law of Moses that they were attempting to trap him with. Again, Leviticus 20, verse 10. The man who commits adultery with another man's wife, he who commits adultery with his neighbor's wife, the adulterer, and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. And in writing that law, he confronts them with their failure to obey the law of Moses. How so? In their deliberate failure to bring both parties who were guilty of this adultery before Jesus for judgment and so when Jesus says, he who is without sin among you, he isn't talking about every situation in life. But he's talking to these specific men and saying to them, he who is without sin and being obedient to God's word in this situation, you go ahead and cast that first stone. And they knew that they were not concerned about God's law or the law of Moses or obedience to law, the law of Moses and that they only brought one party. And then Jesus just lets the word sit on them. He just lets it sit on them. The silence and the conviction begins to come upon their hearts and from the oldest to the youngest they walk out and they now, ashamed in front of the crowd, I mean, pretending to have such a zeal for God, such a zeal for God's law, and, 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 but like this woman, they disregarded it when it suited their purposes to do so. And so, God took their secret sin, and He made it public. Jesus, in essence, saying, Okay, you like to out people on secret sin? Then we know how to do that too. And He did that with them. God took their secret sin, made it public, 
None of them could be the impartial witnesses the law required in order to cast the first stone in a capital case. Now, they're the ones that stand naked in front of the crowd, expose their hypocrisy, paraded before the crowd, even as they had done to this woman. And the end result of it being that Jesus is left alone with this woman, standing in front of him and in front of this still gathered Bible study group. You never know what's going to happen in the Bible study that Jesus is teaching. I mean, they came for one sermon, they got a different sermon. It's a good sermon, though. Notice in verses 10 and 11, Jesus' conversation with this woman. I've got to put herself, put, again, put yourself in her shoes. Now, she's in one frame of mind when, when those, the scribes and the Pharisees are there. She knows they're gone. So, so this is all clicking. Man, her, her mind is moving now. And so, so she's in a different emotional place now, a different kind of mental place. She's just trying to process this thing as it's all happening right before her eyes. So here she is, publicly shamed in a way that would be anyone's worst nightmare. She's embarrassed. She is guilty. She knows that she is guilty. She has no idea what Jesus is going to do. You and I know the rest of the story because we read the rest of the story. She's living in time. She does not know what this man is going to do to her. And so that's the place she's in. And I'm thinking there's a lot of tension in that, in that courtyard. Not just in the heart of the, the woman, but in the heart of the congregation. They're watching this whole thing. I mean, they got Marty Feldman eyes, trust me, gigantic eyes watching this thing. And they're wondering, what, what in the world is, is Jesus going to do? And that's, that's the question everyone had. What will Jesus do with her? What does Jesus do with sinners who are caught in the very act? With sinners who are undeniably guilty. And we watch the scene from a vantage point of 2,000 years away. But we watch it, and we watch it with the same question in our minds. What does Jesus do with sinners who are undeniably guilty? Notice in verse 10, he asked her two questions. Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Question number two. Question number one. Question number two, has no one condemned you? And then notice very carefully in verse 11, her reply was, no one, Lord. And I want you to circle, at least in your mind, and maybe even in your Bible, that word Lord. She calls him Lord. And the interesting thing about the Greek word that uh, is used for her speaking this Lord to Jesus is it's the same Greek word that's used for Lord in Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, that is, you confess him as your Lord, and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. For with the heart one believes to righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made to salvation. I'm inclined to believe that she became a believer in Jesus, a follower of Jesus, a disciple of Jesus, that very moment in, in the middle of this incident. And I think there's a couple of reasons to believe it. First of all, she doesn't slink away when the other people do. 
And it would have been the easiest thing. Those, those scribes and Pharisees, one by one, oldest to the youngest, they head out. I mean, the natural reaction, uh, and a just purely natural thing would be for her to say, man, okay, they went in that direction, I'm going to go in this direction, but I'm getting out of here. That would have been the easy thing to do, but she doesn't do it. They leave, she stays. And she stays standing there because she wants to know what does Jesus have to say to a person like her in, in this, this situation. And the second thing, so she's, she's drawn close to him, and the second thing that I think speaks of the fact that she trusts in Jesus now as her, her Lord is that she calls him Lord. She doesn't call him rabbi. She doesn't call him a great teacher. She doesn't call him a good man. She calls him Lord. That's a carefully chosen word. Something's happened here. Her statement that she makes in verse 11, in the light of her faith, his statement rather to her in the light of her faith in verse 11 is, neither do I condemn you, go and sin no more. Okay, what does Jesus do with a sinner who is undeniably guilty? Neither do I condemn you. He extends to her, his grace extends forgiveness to her. Romans chapter 8 verse 1, There is now therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. So concerning her very sin-filled past and very recently sin-filled past, he just covers it with his grace, he covers it with his forgiveness, he gives her now a fresh start. As the Bible says, if any man or woman is in Christ, we become new creations, the old things are passed away, behold, all things have become new. Jesus uniquely is able to give men and women, give sinners a fresh start. In, in this life. And that's what he extends to her. But then notice he also speaks to her of her future. He said, went on to say, go and sin no more. As, as one who called him Lord, he's saying to her, now you need to cease a life of adultery. Now you need to cease a life of, of sin. He said, I don't condemn you, but don't go back to your sinful life. Now, very often people who don't know the Bible very well and maybe know three verses of it uh, or people who know something of this passage or they've heard somebody talk about it but they've never bothered to read all 11 verses in it, they'll quote Jesus whenever someone condemns them concerning their sin and they'll say, but Jesus said, let he who is you know, without sin among you, let him cast the first stone. Or Jesus said to that woman that was called in the very act of adultery, neither do I condemn you. But they never go on to finish the verse or to finish the statement. Jesus went on to say, go and sin no more. And they ignore Jesus' call to a holy life on the part of those who claim to follow him. And I think that the reason that people do that is because in their minds... They think forgiveness is good, but obedience is bad. And it's not. Forgiveness is good, and obedience is good. The Bible says the way of the transgressor is hard. God said that. Now, he, he knows it quite apart from the human experience of watching 
several billion people on planet Earth prove it every single day. But the way every command that he has... He, that, that, when we look and say, well, you know, sometimes obedience is hard. It is hard, but there's something harder. That's disobeying God's word. There's a motive of love and grace behind every command that God gives in his word. And I think that sometimes people think of God, when they think of God and they think of him being gracious, they think of it only in the terms of forgiveness. But his grace is bigger than that. It's more multifaceted than that. His forgiveness is a wonderful demonstration of his grace. But it's, it's only one dimension of it. His grace is further extended by empowering us now as his followers to live a holy or an obedient or Christ-like life. That's grace too. I'll tell you who it's grace for. For the person who is sick of living their life. Sick of living a life of sin and the bondage of sin. Then they look at it and say, neither do I condemn you. That excites their heart. That excites their soul. But the words, and go and sin no more, excites their soul just as greatly. Listen, if the Father sent Jesus into this world to die on the cross, to merely provide me as a human being with the forgiveness of my sin, that's all. Every day I'd have to continue to live the same crummy, sin-dominated life even long after I was sick of my sin and wanted to be free from it. But he sent a Savior into the world that would forgive me every day but not lift me out of that lifestyle. I'd take it. As I said, beggars can't be choosers. I would take that. But God has done something far greater in his Son. He sent him into the world to die on the cross for our sins, not only to provide the grace of forgiveness in our lives, but then also to provide us with the power to live a different kind of life once we come to know him. That's the Savior that he sent into the world. That's Jesus. That's the big picture of Jesus and the big picture of his grace. Wonderful. Thank you, Lord, for that. And so he goes on to speak of all of this, really, in verse 12 to this Bible study that's still around him. He spoke to them again and said, I'm the light of the world, and he who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. And all of that grace from Jesus for forgiveness and for the ability to live a changed life is waiting for anyone and everyone who will simply put their trust in him. And the order is significant. He said, neither do I condemn you. There's the forgiveness of sins. And now, as a result of the forgiveness of sins, now as a response to that, now I want to live a life of holiness for him to bring him glory, the God who's done so much for me and done for you. And so all of this, the forgiveness, the changed life, it's all waiting for anyone that's willing to make Jesus their Savior and their Lord today. I don't know how you came to know the Lord. You know, I, one of the things I wish, I wish I knew everybody's testimony in the whole body of Christ. And I wish I knew the testimony of everyone in this church. Some people come to know the Lord 
on a mountaintop. They had all these goals, all these desires. They wanted to own these things. They wanted to be this by a certain age. They wanted to have a husband and a wife. They wanted, you know, 2.3 children. They wanted whatever and this and that and these accomplishments and to be esteemed in this way. And they reached that mountaintop and there is so empty in terms of the purpose and meaning of life and, and, and they can't live without purpose and without meaning that God brings to our lives. And they come to know the Lord from the mountaintop. It's a, it's, a, it's a valley, but it's a valley on a mountaintop. I'm sorry, I'm making this up as I go along here. <laughs> then there's another group of people, like this woman right here. And sometimes it is a season of great shame that finally has me looking for a Savior who has grace that's greater than my shame. And that happens all the time. This room, all around this town, it'll happen today, all around this world. And so she comes to this place, and sometimes it's like that. It's this kind of a season that brings us to the Lord. We say, I can't believe I made those decisions. I can't believe the repercussions. I can't believe it could be in the paper or it could be or my mom's going to find out of this and all those things. Where in the world can a person like me turn to? Where is a Savior for a person like me? And the Savior is Jesus. The religious leaders, they tried to force Jesus to admit to being one or the other, to being holy but unliving, unloving, or to being loving but unholy. But Jesus is both loving and holy. The perfect match for needy sinners. He is the perfect match for the need in each one of our lives. They couldn't move them from one or the other. I mean, how can God be both holy and loving and yet he is because he knows that's what we need in God and in a Savior when we're finally willing to turn to him that's the Savior that God offers to you today in his son you need love and you need holiness and are both wrapped up in him praise the Lord let's stand together and we'll pray